Um, While they're doing that, let me invite you to take a Bible, if you brought one, and open it to John chapter 4. Extend another greeting to um, all of our uh, guests today that are coming to celebrate this such a major milestone and the life of uh, these, these kids and babies. It was awesome to see them across the front. What was cool, one of the really cool things is half of the group in front of you were adopted today. Uh, adopted through fostering or um, other ways. So that's cool, one of the values that we hold here at the church. And um, the other value is that your kids matter to God. They really do. You're going to see in the passage today, a a man's son is sick and Jesus heals him. Uh, Your kids matter to God. They just really do. In a world that Jesus entered... um, Both women and children um, were just really pushed to the margins and sidelined, didn't have a voice of authority, didn't have really any voice in society at all. And Jesus spent the majority of his life in ministry with them. And uh, multiple occasions you see him interacting with children. And uh, it was cool this last, uh, we've been celebrating three years, uh, the last three Sundays, sorry, we celebrated uh, 10 years as a church. And as as we did that, the last of the uh, last week, um, we handed out little testimony cards, and we just asked <clears throat> you to look over the past 10 years of your life and just see, uh, you know, just brag on God a little bit. How has he been faithful in your life over the past 10 years? And it was cool as we were kind of reading through and thanking God for those as a staff. And um, uh, one of my daughters, Ellie, wrote one, and it was funny on there. She says, I've been at Covenant my whole 10 years of life. Um, and she has, and it's cool to see these kids dedicated, and some of either Jason alluded to in our youth group now, built up from um, uh, been just with us for that long. That's just such a cool and neat thing. <clears throat> We're getting back in the book of John. We took a uh, 10-week hiatus, and so we're going to get back, and in today's text, we see Jesus doing the supernatural, what John calls, the author John calls, miraculous signs. Not just because they show us the power of Jesus, but they certainly do, but because they teach us things in the process. A sign is a symbol, and these symbols point us to something about the true nature and character of God. And so that's what we're going to look in. John tells us, if you want to flip over, you can. I don't think I have this on the screen. In John chapter 20 and verse 30, at the end of the book... John tells us the purpose for the book so that we didn't get confused as to why he wrote it. The gospel of Luke, Luke tells us in the beginning, John tells us in the end, and he uses this same kind of phrase, this miraculous sign. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, that many other signs, that's the miraculous, powerful things that Jesus would have done in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I love this phrase, and by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus didn't do the miracles just to do them. These weren't feats of supernatural strength just to impress. The point was to show the power of God on display to verify at times the very deity of Christ and that there would be this anthem or theme that the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of light. 
So as we jump in this story, let me give you a little context. We're at the end of chapter 4, and Jesus is leaving Samaria. If you've been around church very long, you've probably heard the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that happened in this incredible way. Um, the fact that this lady, right, came to faith and then would, went back to her hometown and told all of those people, and they came, and they begged Jesus to stay and teach for a couple days, and he did just that. If you look at the map of Israel, Jerusalem's down here at the bottom, um, Galilee is up here at the top. This is where Jesus' hometown is. Nazareth is there. Capernaum's there. Cana's there. This is kind of the country, uh, uh, the, 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 the countryside that Jesus would live in. And so he's leaving from Jerusalem at Passover. If you go back, you'll see that. This is when he turned over the tables, made such a scene in the beginning of uh, the book of John. He, <clears throat> instead of going around Samaria like most Jews, good Jews would have done, he went straight through Samaria, spent time with this woman. An incredible um, act of God happened there. And now he's coming back into uh, the countryside, or his hometown, which gives us some context for why John mentioned this. In verse 43, if you'll jump in with me. After the two days he left for Galilee, that's the two days in, in uh, Samaria. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Okay, so Galilee is Jesus' kind of hometown, his countryside, where he grew up. And because these people felt so familiar with him, they didn't honor him the way they should have. In this, we recognize that they were not really familiar with Jesus, just knowing about Jesus. And this is happening as I get older. Um, some people that you're really familiar with and you knew as teenagers... It's hard to trust them as, as adults. Several uh, students that have come through my student ministry are now doctors. And I don't know if I trust them because I knew who they were at 13, you know? And, you know, I've just, it's like this fear like grips me um, anytime I would have to go in for a surgery. Like I'm just going to see somebody there that I know and, and they're going to take out all their angst on me. Um, this is what Jesus is saying. I, a prophet does have honor in his hometown. There is such a thing as false familiarity with Jesus. It's this dangerous feeling that we know all about him, but we really don't know him. And this is a real danger for us, church, especially in the religious South where Christianity has become part of the broader culture to know things about Jesus, but not to have this real relationship of faith with him. Jesus had been in Jerusalem before coming through Samaria. The text tells us that. The people had seen him. They remembered uh, what Jesus had done here. They remembered him turning over the tables. They remember him in chapter 2 of verse 22 predicting his own uh, resurrection from the dead. It's a miraculous thing. Or they saw other uh, miracles and signs performed. Verse 25 of chapter 2 tells us that. That many things happened that... Jesus did many signs and wonders. Regardless, they had their popcorn ready. They were eager to see what this miracle Jesus was going to do in their hometown. Verse 46. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee. This once more points us back to the beginning. This is where Jesus did his first miracle. Where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official's son who lay sick in Capernaum. 
Capernaum is really where Jesus' headquarters of his ministry was from, but he's not there. He's in Cana. So when the man heard that Jesus had arrived from Galilee, in Galilee, from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you see, you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Once we, we meet the character here, uh, the royal official, your translation might say the, the nobleman's son. Likely this is a guy, think about, you know, the, the chief of staff that works for a president or something. This is who, he's serving Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas would be the one that would later chop off John the Baptist's head. This is Herod the Great's son. And this man begs Jesus, this nobleman, with all of his clout and resources, hears that Jesus is in Cana. And if I do my geography right, that's between 18 and 20 miles. And so he sets off on a trek to meet Jesus. And Jesus... As he begs Jesus to heal his son, Jesus begins rebuking people who need a sign of healing before they believe. Now, he wasn't directly rebuking this man, just the nature, and Jesus was going to run into several like this, people who depended on signs and wonders before they would believe. Jesus' words here weren't necessarily harsh, as he would encounter many Galileans who were interested in only the miracles. They wanted the things that Jesus did, not the person who Jesus was. Again, a real danger for us church to go and worship genie Jesus, where he is only as valuable to us as the things that he accomplishes for us or the things he does for us. When Jesus, that's not the nature of relationship he wants with us, he invites us to be a friend, to be close, to experience this relationship. Now I want to say just a couple things about signs and wonders. One, signs and wonders can lead a person to belief in God. We see part of that happening here. And they can validate a heavenly messenger. We see this through scripture. But they can also have no effect on a person. If signs and wonders were all it took, then all of the Israelites that followed the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, that saw God do incredible things, they even heard the audible voice of God. And yet many of them did not believe. Many of them did not trust. Many of them did not put their faith. I mean, moments after hearing the audible voice of God, what did these Israelite people do? They fashioned a calf out of gold so that they could worship it. And I think the warning for us, church, is to think, God, if you would just do something miraculous to bolster my faith, That is a broken crutch to lean on. Third thing quickly about signs and wonders. Second Thessalonians says that Satan can also use signs and wonders. Some people want deliverance from comfort, uh, deliverance uh, from discomfort and deliverance from pain so much that they would exchange, right, their soul for deliverance in this world. And that's a dangerous thing for us to put our trust in verse 49 the royal official said sir comes come down before my child dies go and your son will live and the man took Jesus at his word and departed 
So the man, you can see it, he goes to Jesus, he's begging, it says he begged Jesus to come and heal his son. You know, there are things that you think that are important that aren't so important when something more important happens. I'm sure this guy had lots of things on the to-do list, but his son was dying. And when you get a scare like that, all the other things kind of fade into the background. And the most important things come clearly to the front. And so he asked Jesus to heal him. Jesus goes into, as Jesus does, talking about this other thing. Um, You guys not going to believe. Unless people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you'll never believe. The guy's not really sure exactly what that means. So he says again, sir, please come down before my child dies. Jesus says, your son will live. And I love that John doesn't give us more color in this commentary. Jesus says your son will live. And then it said the man believed, took him at his word, and then departed. And this is what you're seeing, this evolving of faith in this man. This really is an incredible step of faith. Can you kind of picture yourself in the same story? Your child is sick or someone you know really closely is sick or a grandchild is sick. And they're sick and they're at the, not just sick, they're at the point of death. And you've tried everything else within your arsenal to fix this little boy, fix this little girl. And nothing is working. And so you hightail it to 18 miles to Jesus. You say, Jesus, come with me and heal my son or my daughter. And Jesus just simply says, your son will live. And then you're like, okay. And then leave. Don't you think it'd be like, hey, Jesus. Thanks, man. Why don't you come with me just so if we get back there and it didn't really work, the teleportation thing or whatever you're doing didn't really work, then you can kind of handle things. I don't have to come, you know, I don't have to have a dead son then and then come back and say, can you come raise it? You know, Jesus, it'd be so much easier. Just, you know, just come. As a matter of fact, let me hold your hand. Why don't you teleport us back there, save the trip, and then you can save my son. Verse 51. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him and the father realized this was the exact time in which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. We see Jesus heals from a distance. The father, please come with me. Of course, that's the most reasonable response. The Jewish people had heard of healing and miraculous signs before. Their history was full of it. In the next chapter, it's going to be at the pool of Bethesda, where all these crippled and lame would gather around the pool in tradition that an angel would stir the water and they could jump in and be healed. So they had heard of healing. Their history was Uh, full of this kind of practice, the parting of the Red Sea, Elijah calling down fire from heaven, the staff of these prophets bringing healing. But in every instance until now, these miracle workers, these servants of God, had to be present to bring the actual healing. They had to be involved, use their own staff, but not Jesus. And this is because Jesus is God himself. He's the one who opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence anyway. So with his mouth, he opens up and declares this little boy to be healed. Think about it. If you say, 
let there be a house. And then you have to go and build the house with your own hands or pay someone to do it. And then there is a house. Anything that you would declare, let there be something, you would have to actually go and do the work and, and make it happen, but, but, not, but not Jesus. He didn't have to go and do it because in the power of the very words of God, he spoke everything into existence. He says, let there be light. Boom, light. Because his word is not a wishful word. His word is a word of power. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Listen to this phrase. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can you imagine, if you're, you're in your science class or you, you see, you know, all these people going into, going into space now. And they're trying to repopulate Mars. Have you seen Mars? It looks like a glorious place to go live, right? Good for you if that's something you want to invest in. But you look at the universe and it is so big and you can't even measure it in miles. You measure it in light years. And the word says of the power of the very voice of Jesus Christ that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love, I'm into this geeky scientific stuff. I read all these scientific articles and magazines and full confession. Just super nerdy in that way. And I was reading this, way, this thing this week. There's a group of scientists that are, that are really concerned because the earth is moving faster in its orbit than it ever has before. And I just think about these scientists around this round table scratching their head like, man, how are we going to slow the earth down? This could be dangerous. Let's see what we can invent, right? No. We can sleep so soundly tonight, not even knowing how fast the earth moves. Because it says the very voice of Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. Isn't that incredible? Like the molecules that stick together that actually form the matter that is you are held together by Jesus himself, even in this minute. And if for one millisecond he stopped thinking of you to hold you together, you would vanish into thin air. This is the incredible power of the word of God. I was having church studying this verse this week. Man, how incredible is the power of God at work. And Paul would later say of the gospel that it's the power of God unto salvation. Verse, end of verse 43. So he and his whole household believed this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. We see this incredible shift happen in this man's life after he encountered Jesus. He moved from knowing about Jesus as a miracle worker. Jesus had turned the water into wine. Everybody was looking for Jesus, right? You can, if you can do that, turn the water into wine. He had heard about what Jesus could do. He had never experienced it up close. As word would travel, man, you got to meet this guy, Jesus. He can do these incredible things. He claims to be the Messiah. we got to meet this guy, Jesus. But he moved from knowing about Jesus as a miracle worker to personally trusting him. 
And we don't know exactly when it happened, but this, we see this man's faith growing. And from this, we learn a few things about faith. Let me just give you a few lessons about faith. This is not exhaustive. There's a lot more things about faith that we could study and we will study as we walk through the book of John. But a few things. Some people come to faith through persuasion and others come through a display of God's power. Some through persuasion. This is what we saw in the Samaritan woman. God did no direct miracles there other than knowing her past. But through persuasion, as Jesus talked and engaged and, hey, think about this. And what about this? Through persuasion, of course, it's all supernatural. John would later say that you only believe through a gift of faith. And that gift of faith is supernatural in and of itself. But she comes, a Samaritan woman, through persuasion. I came to Christ through persuasion. As I read God's word and saw my parents live it out and it being authentic, the Holy Spirit opened my spiritual eyes that I would believe. And I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. Yet some people come through power. Jason and I were at a meeting of church planters even this week. And one of the planters talked about, and I talked to him after, the, after he gave this testimony, talked about in his journey that he was at a, at a party and he was doing drugs and all the other things that you're not supposed to be doing, all these ungodly things. And yet in the middle of the party, the Holy Spirit met him in what he claims is this supernatural way. And he walked away from decades of that lifestyle and immediately ran home, found the Bible and gave his life to Christ through power. Like, like, like similar to Paul's story from Saul to Paul on the road to Damascus, you remember that. He's persecuting Christians, he's defaming the name of Jesus, he's persecuting the way of Christianity. And on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, what happens? Jesus himself shows up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Talks in his audible voice, everyone saw a bit of a light. No one else understood it except for Saul himself. Some come through power. Regardless, all of it involves God at work in your life and mine. Think about when you came to Christ. For those of you who are Christians in here, think about the time or the season. Maybe you don't know specifically when it was. A lot of people who come through persuasion, it's hard to know specifically. We might know when we announced it or when we got baptized, but... It was likely a season where you're, the light is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. C.S. Lewis describes it as the sun coming up on an overcast day. It just, you can't see exactly when the sun pops up, but you just know, wait, it's not nighttime anymore. The light is out. Yet you talk to those people who came to Christ through power, they're the ones that know. I mean, the exact time, the exact date, God spoke to them and they gave their life to him. Some through persuasion, some through power. All of it requires a supernatural work of God. <clears throat> Next thing about faith. Faith is really two elements. It's an internal conviction that leads to external actions. Internal conviction that leads to external actions. Some parts of the New Testament, like Paul and Romans, would emphasize the internal conviction. The internal conviction. And other parts of the New Testament, like James, would really emphasize the external action. Well, which one is it, Pastor? It's, it's both. It's internal conviction that leads to external action. That's certainly what it is. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This man hears and then he obeys. 
He hears and he obeys. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. And the man believed Jesus and took him at his word and departed. The man believed. He took Jesus at his word. And he went on his way. External action. Do you see the marrying of the two? Friends, faith is not just what you believe. It's belief that leads to action. Over and over. James would say faith, if not accompanied by works, is what? It's a false faith. It's a dead faith. It's a worthless faith. Faith without works is worthless. Jesus would say in Matthew that works, Jesus, I cast out demons in your name. Without a relationship of faith has been done in vain. There's no relationship. Do you see how they're both married together? They both married together are the sign of real and true powerful faith. Faith is obedience to what you know. This man knew very little about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker, that he took some time to speak to him, and that he said, go, your son is healed. And with those three little bits of truth that he knew about Jesus, he believed and obeyed what he knew. There's this myth in many religious circles that the more you know, the godlier you are. But it normally just doesn't work out that way. The Bible warns us that knowledge can puff up and lead to pride and that God opposes the proud. Now listen, I'm not against studying the word of God or going to seminary. I value those things and I've put a lot of my life into those things. But listen, some of you don't need more knowledge. You need to obey what you know. You need to take a step of obedience. It's like a doctor saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable practicing medicine until I know everything there is to know. He would never practice medicine. In the same way, I'm not going to believe and have faith in, in God until, I, until I've read through the Bible 19 times and memorized half of it. No, no, no. Can I tell you, in my experience, I was a youth pastor for over a decade. The greatest evangelists that I have personally ever met have been teenagers. And especially teenagers who went to a disciple now, who went to a camp experience, who, whose friend led them to the Lord. And their exuberance and experience of forgiveness and joy, they would take the little bit that they knew and they would go tell all their friends, hey, you got, you got to go meet Jesus. Seriously, they, they, they knew basically nothing. They'd been saved for 10 minutes or 15 or an hour. It's not just about what you know. It's obedience to what has been revealed. There are a lot of people that were interested in the signs. And Jesus is going to have some harsh words for those. Wait till we get to John 6. Jesus wants to really speak to their heart about not just cognitive belief, but obedience. There's probably men and women in here who say, you know what, Luke, I believe in Jesus. But my life, what I really pursue, what I really find comfort and hope in is my money. 
That's why I work all the time. That's why I'm trying to save it all. And I neglect the most important things, the discipleship of my kids, worshiping with family, community group, growing as a disciple. I neglect those things so that I can go make more money. Friends, your God is not Jesus. Your God is your money. Or there are others who say, look, I believe in Jesus, but their whole life is centered around chasing pleasure or comfort or power. And friends, don't be... Don't be deceived. Your God is not Jesus. Your God is the things that you put your hope in. That is your functional Savior. And Jesus is trying to bring to the surface this idea of faith. Eternal life comes not when you just believe with your mind, but when you entrust your whole life into his care. When you become his. Last thing about faith and then a couple points of application. Life-giving faith grows beautiful and pure through difficulty. Like gold, life-giving faith grows most beautiful and pure through the fire. That's how you, that's how you bring out the impurities of the gold. You would, you would heat it up really high temperatures and the gold would melt the impurities and the dross would raise to the top and that would be cleaned off and in the same way this is how God works with us friends most times suffering and difficulty is the only thing that really gets our attention that really exposes the dark corners of our heart that really blast open the closets with all the skeletons in it's the it's the suffering it's the difficulty As the heat's turned up, our sin rises to the surface and we have a chance to deal with our sin and to continually put faith in you. Talk to people who've walked through some of the most difficult things in their life. And let me promise you that's what they're going to tell you. Listen, I don't like the road that I'm on, but I wouldn't exchange it for anything because the closeness of God in those moments when I felt like there was no hope, those men and women are so much more like Jesus. And this is what this guy's learning. Jesus puts this guy off several times. Jesus, would you, would you heal my son? You know what? Sometimes no, nobody's going to even believe unless they see the signs and wonder. Jesus, would you please come down? Jesus could have gone with him. Jesus could have healed him immediately. Jesus could have healed the boy before the man ever left the house. But he had to go on that 18-mile journey not knowing what's going to happen to his son as he's going to meet Jesus. And some of you are going to have to walk a road of difficulty and suffering. And my plea with you today is don't waste the difficulty. Don't excuse and blame the difficulty away Look for God's nearness in the midst of it. This man had to take the painful journey not knowing what was going to happen to his son. The journey itself was changing him. Friends, Jesus knows what you need. He just knows what you need. He knows whether it's surgery or a hug. Whether it's a word of comfort or a slap in the face. Jesus knows what you need. 
And when we really step back and submit to his lordship and let him bring what we need the most, that's when we see real growth in our life. That's when we see our faith grow. Here's a few points of application real quickly. We'll be done. One, take your problems to Jesus. Take your problems to Jesus. Often the only benefit of pain and suffering is that they point us to Jesus. Without the problem, this man would have never come to Jesus. Jesus invites us to bring everything to him. The psalmist reminds us in, in Psalm 55, 22, to cast our cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Peter tells us to bring our anxieties to him. And 1 Peter 5, 7, casts all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Jesus tells us to let our worries fall at his feet. Friends, if you walk out of here with nothing today, maybe this is it. Take your problems to Jesus. Second, when you come to him, let him answer on his own terms. Let him answer on his own terms. He's going to answer what's ultimately best for you, whether you like it or not. When my kids come and ask me for something, it's either yes, no, or later. Claire's 13. She's been asking for a white Jeep for like two years now. The answer is no. Maybe later if you get a job and work hard and save enough money and buy one yourself. Yes, no, or later. This is how God responds to us. In some things, it's a resounding yes. James would again remind us, a lot of things you have not because you what? Ask not. You just didn't even, you didn't even ask him. You just thought you're just going to just work on your own. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it until you're in a desperate situation. When if you would have just asked him, he would have brought those things. In other cases, it's just no. No, I know you want that, but that's not what's best. You see Paul, right, when he's struggling with the thorn of flesh, the messenger of Satan. He's fighting this thorn of flesh. He keeps going to God. God, please remove it. God, please remove it. God, please remove it. And God said, no. You remember why? Well, he would say that my grace is sufficient, yes, to know the grace. But you remember why he got the thorn in the flesh? To keep me from becoming conceited and proud. See, Paul understood this. God opposes the proud. You do not want to be opposed by God. And so this thorn in the flesh was allowed by God, not sent by God, but allowed by God to remain so that Paul would be conformed into the image of Jesus, which ultimately was the greatest gift Paul could ever receive. Sometimes he says no, and then sometimes he says later. I've prayed for hundreds, if not thousands of people and prayed for healing. And I've seen God through supernatural power heal some people. But there's a lot of them, they didn't get healing. Not in this life. Eventually that prayer for healing for those that are children of God is always a yes. Just maybe not in this life. And that might be the road that you're walking. You're praying even now. You've got something that's just heavy and hard. And you're praying that God would heal. Keep praying. I'll, I'll pray with you. But let's let God answer according to his own terms. Because he's the one that really knows what's best. 
There's this false doctrine out there that just piles more suffering on those that are already suffering called faith healing. And they say that, well, you probably weren't healed because, because healing is dependent upon your faith. How much little faith did this little boy have? He never even met Jesus. How much faith did the father have? Very little at that point, very little. Jesus didn't heal based upon this guy's faith. It wasn't the amount of faith. This is what, man, don't get me started. This irks me, this false. Man, if you just had a buddy who had a kid that had cancer in the hospital and they were struggling through this. And one of the nurses came and told him, you know what, I believe Jesus would heal your son if you just had more faith. Man, I'm glad I wasn't there and it wasn't a male nurse. I would have knocked him in the face in the name of Jesus. It's not the amount of your faith, friends. It's the object of your faith. You put your faith in Jesus. It's the object of the faith. That's why Jesus would say, you know, faith like a mustard seed. That's not a great amount of faith. But that little grain of mustard seed of faith in Jesus, it's the object of the faith. And that's what it means to walk with Jesus. That that he's the object of our faith. And when we can't do it, and we can't do it, friends. We push all the chips to the center of the table. We're all in on Jesus. We're all in. Here's the last one. As Jesus works, tell your friends and family about it. It's amazing that this this man goes home and the text includes this for us just so we didn't miss it. And his whole household This man was a man of means. This man probably had some helpers and had a couple lean-tos onto his house. And it said his whole household. And he himself believed. Verse 53, and all his household. Statistically, when a wife converts, it's not a really great chance that the husband will convert. But when a husband converts, statistically speaking, when a husband converts, the wife and the kids are coming along. Why is that? It's just the way God thinks God has created things. And women in this room, I love you, and I pray that you walk with Jesus. And that you're just such a beautiful aroma and reflection of him. But men... I'm challenging you today to change the legacy of your family by learning what it means to walk with Jesus. Not just belief, but belief followed by obedience. Look at this man's family. One little boy was physically healed, but the whole household was spiritually healed. And men, God has planted you in your family for this reason, to lead them spiritually, to wake up earlier than them and man the post. God has convicted me this week of this. As school has started back and all the things, my wake up time is a little later and a little later and I got just enough time to to read the word and say a few little arrow prayers and then the kids are up and then we go. I was studying this passage, man, the Holy Spirit, I love in his kindness, he speaks to us so gently. Luke, that's your job. 
Luke, you're in that family. Those kids, Claire and Ellie and Hudson and your wife, I need you up early, buddy. I need you to put the armor on. And I need you to start, start going to battle for the hearts of those kids. If you've not noticed, our world is so broken. And your kids are going to face things that you never faced. Early, in fifth grade, in third grade, they're going to see things that you would never even imagine them seeing. Satan's got them in his scopes, friends. He sure does. Multiple generations because this one man took a step of faith. There's nothing in scripture that says that there couldn't be a third great awakening in the U.S. It's what I pray for every day. Lord, do it in our day, the prayer of Habakkuk. Lord, we've seen and we've heard about your great fame. Lord, do it in our day. Lord, do it in our day. Would you join me in praying that? That God would bring real revival to our broken nation by turning hearts to him. But those things will only happen when the men in this room get serious about leading their families to follow God. When they start to begin to sacrifice to spend time in prayer to upholding the greatest values of scriptures. Dads, you don't pass on your beliefs, you pass on your values. Not your beliefs, you pass on your values. If you say, you know, I believe church is important, but you only make it a priority once a month, you know what you've communicated to your kids? Church is important when it's convenient. You passed on your values, not your beliefs, you passed on your values. Moms, if you tell your kids that God's word is important, but they don't see you submitting to the word of God, repenting as you read it, memorizing it, sharing it with others, the kids aren't gonna say the belief, oh, I believe God's word's important. They're gonna take the value. Oh, well, mom thinks God's word is just as important as TV. You don't pass on your beliefs, you pass on your values. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is the challenge to all of us today, that we would be serious about this. Our time for games and the laissez-faire attitude is over. The war is on. Your marriage is in the sights of the enemy. Like nothing that I've, nothing I've ever seen in my ministry. Jason and I in the past two weeks have gotten maybe 12 or 15 phone calls. Hey man, I don't know if our marriage is gonna make it. That's not because you're incompatible. That's because the enemy has crept in. Speaking lies in your ear and lies in her ear. If it's not your marriage, is it certainly your kids? Kids first on the list. Dads, if you don't disciple them to Jesus, the world's, are, the world's gonna disciple them in and of itself. Fun and games are over, time to tighten the belt of truth, to pick up the shield of faith grab the sword of the spirit and it's really time to go to war my question I guess we'll wrap it up this way Jason's going to come lead communion in a minute what step of faith is God asking you to take today what step of faith we're all somewhere on this spiritual journey some of us have been walking with the Lord for 25 or 30 years some of us were never walked with the Lord. We've been playing religious games for a long time, and this is you here. 
you hear it right now in your heart. If you'll listen to the Holy Spirit calling you to take a step of faith, to push all the chips to the center of the table. Men, maybe it's for you to go man the post and be the leader of your home, to sit down with your wife tonight and come up with a plan. How are we going to disciple our kids unto Jesus? We can't force them to do anything. We can't make them do anything. But we certainly can set the sail in our house and pray that the Holy Spirit would blow in such a way that he would radically capture the heart of our kids. Let me pray for us. As you pray silently, I want you to do business with God this morning. I know you may have came for baby dedication and man, we love those things, but we want you to hear the gospel that God loves you so much in the midst of your sin that he sent Jesus to die a death that he did not deserve, to pay for sin that he never committed, your sin and mine, so that by trusting in his salvific work on the cross, you and I could be adopted into his family, made sons and daughters. And you may have been trying to do it yourself for a long time. My invitation is to come to Jesus. Friend, would you come to Jesus? For those that are struggling, maybe you're in this season of suffering and difficulty and it is so hard and so heavy. Friend, Jesus hears and he knows and he is with you. And he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily want it any more than you do. But it's making you a certain kind of person. Others of you, the step of faith is you need to take what, you, what you've learned and go share it with somebody. You say, Luke, well, I don't know enough. It doesn't take, it don't take a lot. Be obedient with what you know. God, I pray for my friends. Lord, would you, as you, as you only can, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in our hearts, in our minds? Would your kindness lead many to repentance this morning? Would you break the chains of addiction, the chains of pornography, the chains of alcoholism or substance abuse, of generational curses, of believing the wrong thing for such a long time, the strongholds and chokeholds that the enemy has on these people in this room. Lord, would you, through the power of your spirit and through the blood of Jesus, would you break those chains so that we could walk in freedom this morning? And Lord, I pray that we would man our post, not out of duty, but out of delight because of what you're doing in us. Lord, continue to have your way with us. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Phil's going to lead us in response song. And, um, and Jason will lead us to communion.